everyone. Welcome to Way of Life Podcast, where we firmly believe that everyone picks a way in life and what way you pick is extremely important and directly affects how you live. In this podcast, we seek to interview people from all around Australia and beyond on life's most important topics. Whether you're a Christian, a skeptic, or someone with a whole heap of questions, this podcast is for you. My name is Matt, a pastor living in Brisbane, Australia. This is Way of Life Podcast. Well, welcome everyone um, to Way of Life Podcast. So for those of you who are visiting, um, this isn't what we normally do every single week at Wyndham Baptist on a Sunday night for our service. This is kind of a about a once a month type thing that we like to do. Um, so a little bit about the podcast. We, we believe that everyone uh, picks a way in life and uh, the way that you pick actually really matters. So what I mean is, is that we often, we assign to different belief systems and we think about different stuff and this actually affects how we live and what we say and what we do in life. Um, so to kind of analyze what we do believe and why we believe is actually quite important. Um, so we like to get different guests on, like we've got a guest on tonight, which I'll talk a little about, about in the moment. Um, but my big encouragement uh, every podcast is that we'd come at this with a sense of humility, um, a sense of kind of openness to what's being said, because you don't want to always just hear exactly what you believe. When you're wrestling with what you believe, you kind of want to hear what's out there. You want to wrestle with it for yourself. And that would be my encouragement uh, for myself, for everyone that's listening here uh, now or into the future, just to wrestle with this. And you don't, If you don't end up coming to the same conclusions as, as Stephen tonight or any of our speakers in the past or in the future, that's okay. But you owe it to yourself to kind of go, okay, I'm going to listen. I'm going to see what they say and I'm going to wrestle with it. And you may even come out even better. If not, you'll be even stronger in what you do believe. So um, I thought that's actually particularly true, particularly with the topic that we're going through tonight. Um, we're going a lot through history, but kind of how did we get to this current cultural moment with particular kind of uh, focuses like truth and sexuality and identity and all those kinds of things? And like, how did we get to this point? And was it always like this? So there's strong opinions, as I'm sure you guys are aware, on on these kinds of topics. So um, really encourage you just to try come at it with an open heart and open mind and with a, a discussing discussing heart. Um, and if you have any questions for Stephen tonight, he's uh, going to stick around for some Q&A as well. So you can go on Slido, which is sli.do. It should come up on the slide behind us if uh, you forget. And the number is 8384 as far as I know. If I'm wrong, just check that slide. But a little bit about, so we've got Stephen Shavura, Dr. Stephen Shavura here tonight on Zoom. So a little bit about Stephen. He is the Senior Lecturer of European and Australian History at Campion, in, uh, Campion College in Sydney. Uh, prior to Campion, he taught the, the philosophy of social science and political theory at several Australian universities. He's a regular podcast speaker, a regular writer. He likes to write. He's been on podcasts like the John Anderson Conversations and heaps, heaps more. So me and, me and uh, Stephen, we met at um, 
at the download, which is like an Australian Christian lobby type thing. And I was that overly keen person to be like, hey, do you want to come on my podcast? And we we got to have some really cool chats. I just remember sitting in the foyer with you. It was really special. We could just have some open conversations about that. Um, so, Stephen, how are you tonight? I'm really well, and it's uh, really great to be on the podcast. And hello to everyone in the audience. I, I wish I could see you, um, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's great to be here. Thanks for uh, tuning in or turning up. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. I know you're a busy guy and you do a lot of speaking, you do a lot of research and so on and so forth. So I really appreciate you giving of your time. So I'm not going to waste any time because – we're kind of going through like a full week's worth of stuff in like 40-ish minutes. So um, I don't want to I don't want to waste too much time there. So I want to kind of set the tone a little. Um, I want to jump right in. So I'm hoping that you could kind of help us, Steve, uh, understand a bit about how we got to this current cultural moment. Um, when mm. we've got kind of huge focuses, as I said, on identity, on sexuality, on kind of this idea of living your truth and like relative kind of truth and a huge focus on mental health even and technology. And like I've, even from my own experience, like I'm, I'm almost 30 now. I graduated in 09. And like many of these things that I just named weren't even kind of on my radar when I was at school and when I was finishing school. Um, so it seems like things have changed very drastically in the past kind of 10, 20 years, if not even longer. Um, so tonight I'm wondering if you could kind of unpack that, like what's, what's, what's kind of come before this moment in time and why are these particular things so prevalent? How do we mm. get here? Well, yeah. Um, thanks for that. Um, first I, I should clarify, uh, I, mean, I suppose we should clarify when we ask, uh, how did we get here? Uh, what exactly is here? that we're talking about. Mm. And so when I sort of answer the question, how did we get here? What I mean is how did we get to what we might describe as a post-Christian age, mm. or I would actually even say as something like a neo, a neo-pagan age. Uh, how did we get to a point in history where t- uh, church attendance uh, is, is in many ways just so low? Mm. Uh, how did we get to a point, to a, to a culture where, you know, arguably the morality, much of the morality of the Bible and the morality of sort of broader culture have sort of separated apart from one another mm. uh, to the point where biblical morality, particularly uh, regarding sexual uh, morality, uh, is seen not even just as sort of uh, quaint and old-fashioned, but actually oppressive and, and harmful. Mm. Uh, what else? You know, how did we uh, get to a culture where, uh, there is a, a tremendous emphasis on identity, particularly identity in terms of sexuality, and there are other modes of identity out there as well, particularly sort of racial identity, cultural identity. So how did we become obsessed with identity? Mm. Uh, how did we uh, get to a culture which is incredibly therapeutic in its understanding of what the good life is and, and what it is to live a good life? And what I mean by that is, Nowadays, we tend to say to the question, what is the good life? The answer will often be, uh, it, might, it might involve sort of, you know, being kind to others, but to a large extent, it's also being, uh, being true to yourself, for being happy, yeah. basically being happy. And happiness often defined as sort of uh, achieving, you know, uh, the things that you desire uh, in life. Yeah. 
And also, finally, by here, uh, how did we get to a culture where very often history and, and, and past institutions, past ways of doing things, and, and many present institutions and ways of doing things that have a long history, marriage, for example, are considered, again, at best sort of irrelevant or, um, or, or sort of outmoded, at worst, again, oppressive. Mm. So when I answer the question, how did we get here? That's what I mean by here. Yeah, that's That's good. what I mean by our post-Christian age. And so I'll go through about five points. I really don't want to uh, take up too much time with this part because, as I was saying earlier, Matthew, I have a feeling that some of the um, the most important things we'll talk about will probably come out in your questions and, and questions yep. of others as well. Yeah, sounds but good. Let me say, yeah, uh, let me say first, part of the background to all of this, and, and basically I'm for the most part going to be talking about the 1960s and the 1970s, because that is a period that historians call a cultural revolution in the West. Mm. And for those who lived and remember well the period prior to sort of the mid-1960s, those who were alive, maybe they were born anywhere from 1940 to, say, 1955, they will often testify that sort of by the time you get to the late 60s, society is incredibly different. It's almost a new society to what they were used to in the 1950s. A, a rapid and radical change takes place. Uh, so one of the major things that takes place, particularly since the, uh, in the 1960s, is the decline of church attendance. Yeah. Uh, particularly from the 1960s, church attendance around most of the Western world, and by that I mean America, Australia, Canada, uh, certainly Western Europe, it basically starts to plummet. Yeah. And there are all, all sorts of uh, reasons uh, offered for that, uh, many of them to do with uh, technology, so the introduction of cars, the introduction of television, offering people alternative things to do. But there's also, at the time, probably a declining sense of uh, sort of the moral authority of of the church, of theologians, and probably to some extent of the Bible, uh, owing to, in some ways, the rise of the scientific experts. And we'll, we might get a bit uh, uh, get to that a little bit more later. So yep. the decline of church attendance is very important culturally. And so with the decline of church attendance, you have uh, the decline of people on a regular basis being taught the worldview of scripture, being taught the gospel, being taught yeah. a, uh, a Christian view of humans and things, if you like. And so there kind of emerges a vacuum and other ways of thinking start to fill that vacuum. Yeah. And so another huge thing, another huge process that takes place, especially in the 1960s and 70s, is what historians call the sexual revolution. Mm. And the sexual revolution is essentially revolution in the way that people, particularly in the Western world, think about sexual morality and also the way they think about gen or, or gender or sex relations, relations between men and women. Yeah. And a lot of this is made possible by the introduction of the contraceptive pill mm. in, the, in about 1960. Uh, you, had, you had 
uh, feminist ideas prior to 1960, which said things like, um, you know, uh, women uh, should be allowed to pursue careers. Um, a, a woman shouldn't feel that she's not fulfilled unless she's married with children and things like that. And you also had other ideas prior to the 1960s to the effect that, well, we should be able to do whatever we want sexually. Uh, we should have free love. We shouldn't, yeah. we shouldn't constrain our sexual morals simply to that between a man and a woman is in marriage. But with the introduction of the contraceptive pill in 1960, basically what that does is because women for the first time are able to very easily cheaply and very effectively control their reproduction, what that means is that, that sex doesn't necessarily lead to children as, 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 as much as it did prior to the pill, which opens up all sorts of possibilities for mm. new ways of, of living, um, free love, promiscuity. And it also allows women to put off childbirth for a period, which allows them to go into the workforce. And basically, so the sexual revolution very often, to a large extent, changes the way we think about sexual morality. Yeah. And it also changes the way that we think about other things like motherhood, like marriage, and even like um, homosexuality with the, with the disruption of traditional Christian sexual ethics about sex outside of marriage, the question starts arising, well, if we don't need that anymore, what else can we abandon? And, and the idea that the only uh, moral sex is that between a, man, between a man and a woman, that starts to get abandoned, particularly in the 1970s. Yeah. Um, and so what we have with the sexual revolution, as I said earlier, is over time a kind of separation of morality and Christianity, whereas prior to the sexual revolution, uh, the idea that you wouldn't have sex outside of marriage, the idea that the only moral kind of sexual activity is that between a man and a woman within marriage, these were far more socially accepted. Uh, and, and consequently, the Christian understanding of these things was not even so much considered a religious understanding. It was kind of just considered common sense. Right. But with the rise of the sexual revolution, you have a, a movement away from Christian morality among many people in society. And that then, uh, again, undermines the moral authority of Christianity as well. And over time, it starts to place uh, sex and sexuality is something very central to our identity uh, mm. a, 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 of who we are. And we're certainly still living in that moment today. Uh, third, a kind of hyper-individualism emerges, particularly after World War II. After World War II, Western economies, when they recover from the, the, the devastation of World War II, but particularly in America and Australia as well, mm. we have economic booms around the Western world and life has, in a sense, never been better. Uh, we've got more money we've ever had in human history. Living standards are higher than they've ever been in human history. Mm. Health is higher than it's ever been uh, in human history. Basically, we have never lived better in the whole of human history. And so this kind of um, um, prosperity and comfort, that also sort of undermines... Uh, a whole bunch of things that undermines a sense that we need God and that we need religion anymore. We're living longer. We've got everything that we need. Why do we need God anymore? Mm. 
and, and that's something that even happened in the ancient world. Ancient historians talk about the same sort of thing. As, as the Romans became prosperous and more successful, they tended to slacken off on their um, religious duties yeah. because they just felt they didn't need them. So pros- the rise of prosperity, but also that sort of creates a kind of hyper-individualism where if you've got everything that you need, you kind of start turning more inwards in terms of just being able to fulfill your own desires. So like yeah. you would think that when you have everything that you need, um, you would start thinking more about other people because I've got everything I need, so I'll start thinking about what other people need. But in actual fact, human nature being what it is, it's actually the opposite. The more we have, the more we tend to crave for ourselves, and that is certainly something that that happened um, uh, historically. And, 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 and again, this... this individualism and this incredible prosperity, it seems that it gave us a sense of entitlement that if, if we want something, we should be allowed to have it. Mm. Um, and again, that is certainly where we are today. And it's a thoroughly sub-Christian, un-Christian uh, notion. And so again, Christian notions of self-denial Uh, they start to seem uh, fairly quaint uh, as well. And this also, again, again, with this sort of inward turn to selfishness, we start to have an an incredible emphasis on individual happiness being Mm. the meaning of life. And we sort of go, if you like, from this idea of the right to pursue happiness to actually the right to be happy. Um, and, And you hear it nowadays. People say, well, you have the right to be happy, um, and I, every time I hear that, you know, you have a right to be happy. I sort of think to myself, why, why does, why does anyone <laughs> yeah. have a right to be happy? Um, maybe we have a right to pursue the things that might make us happy. Maybe we have a right to that, but a right to be happy. That's a very strange idea. And it probably explains why a lot of people nowadays feel an entitlement to be able to silence people when they say things that make them unhappy. Because Mm. if I have a right to be happy, then if someone says something that makes me unhappy, they violated my right. Mm. And if someone violates my right, well, don't I call on the government to punish them or to introduce new laws to stop them? So I think that the whole ethic of the right to be happy is probably to some extent responsible for uh, sort of what we might call cancel culture, but also intro- a sort of new speech restrictions that are coming through in law. Yeah. And, and this links to sort of, again, another thing that happens after World War II is, again, the rise of sort of psychological, this sort of what, what historians might call psychological man, yeah. where we start to think of ourselves principally in terms of our feelings. Mm. Um, and our identity starts more and more to be defined by our feelings, particularly um, our, our, our sexual urges. Uh, so who am I? Oh, I'm a, I'm a heterosexual male. I mean, mm. uh, of all the identity markers I could have, I could have chosen, Christian, Australian, uh, member of the Shavura household. No, I sort of, I say, no, <laughs> I, I identify as heterosexual. I identify yeah. myself in terms of my, my sexual um um, uh, desires, if you like. Yeah. And, and also with the, 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 the psychological uh, man, uh, we often now start to think of truth as a matter of feelings. And if there's one thing that I try to sort of get people to stop saying is I feel that. So, you know, if I'm giving a class and I ask them a question about, you know, well, what do you think caused World War One? 
someone answers and says, well, I feel that. I kind of want to stop them saying, no, 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 that's not a feeling you have. It's a thought that you have. You're sort of cognitively thinking. You're offering a rational opinion. It's a thought. Yeah. It's not a feeling. But the idea that sort of feelings and truth are sort of somehow the same thing that's very much crept into our language. Yeah. And, of course, that codes pretty badly with Christianity as well because Christianity says that truth is an objective entity and, yeah. in fact, um, Christ himself is truth and it's not located in our feelings it's objective it's out there and even if you don't feel the same thing as what the truth declares so much the worse for your feelings they're wrong and that so sort of the modern sort of subjectivism um doesn't bode well with sort of biblical christianity uh, and and also i i think with the rise of a lot of social problems because of the decline of the family which is which is caused by a whole bunch of things, economic problems. The cost of living uh, is in some ways quite high. Uh, both parents are going to work these days. That puts strains on families. But also the hyper-individualism that's come in, which mm. kind of says, do what makes you happy. And therefore, so the contrary of that is, well, if it doesn't make you happy, stop doing it. Well, there are times in marriage where we don't feel all that happy. Once upon a time, the idea would have been, well, you get married because it's a duty. And so even if you're not happy, you stay married because it's a duty. You just try and figure it out. Uh, but in a modern yeah. sort of happiness, individualistic culture, um, the, the solution more and more nowadays is, well, if you're not happy, you leave because mm -hmm. the whole point of getting married was to be happy, wasn't it? Uh, we might talk more about it later. But, um, and, then, and just finally, the rise of, of what we might call critical theory or cultural Marxist ideas in universities, which have convinced uh, generations of people uh, that... Uh, the way that that traditional societies and certainly the Bible thinks about uh, sex and sexuality and gender, that these are actually oppressive. And what we need to do is to actually uh, inculcate or bring about new ways of thinking about identity and gender and sexuality uh, so we can revolutionary sort of overthrow the existing way of thinking and bring about a kind of diversity, inclusivity, sort of utopia. And it's very evident in, 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 in the education system and certainly also in entertainment mm. uh, and the media. And I might, we might talk about that a bit more later. And, and that sort of critical theory slash cultural Marxism, that starts creeping in very much in the 1960s and especially the 1970s as well. And yeah. this is also a period, it's creeping into the universities. And this is also a period where more people than ever in human history are going to university as well. That's so not true. only do you have these ideas coming into universities, but you've got more people than ever going into universities, hearing them, and then going out into culture-forming occupations, culture-forming, culture-shaping institutions. Mm. They become school teachers. They become lawyers. They, became they become judges. They become journalists. They become activists. They become artists. They become all the things that have a loud voice and have a lot of influence over people people's minds. Uh, and so that would be a, a probably slightly too long um, overview of how we got to where we are today. That was amazing. There's so much in that. I don't even know where to start. That is so good. Um, well, I feel like at certain points we'll probably in, go into some of your points and kind of intertwine between uh, many of them. But I might start with your last point, probably the cultural Marxist type idea. What because I, I feel like that kind of influences a lot of the other points that you've made in some way. 
Um, so could, I wondered if you could explain that a little bit more. How did that become prevalent mm. and how do we see that in some of the other things that you've just talked about? Yeah, so, I mean, so to, to explain cultural Marxism, one has to very, very briefly explain what Marxism is. And many of you might have heard of Marxism. Uh, it's also called sometimes communism, uh, and it goes back to the philosophy of the 19th century um, uh, philosopher Karl Marx. And Karl Marx had a particular view of history and society that is still with us today, except slightly tweaked, and I'll explain that. But basically for Karl Marx, society is really just um, a, a struggle between the, the rich and the poor. And so for Karl Marx, society is struggle between the rich and the poor. And what Karl Marx wanted to see happen was essentially a revolution take place where the cause of the oppression of the poor, which was basically the capitalist economic system, I'm not going to go into what capitalism is, but um, the, I'll just say the rich exploiting the poor, if you like. Karl Marx mm. said the only way we're going to get to a perfect society, if you like, is if we overthrow the way we do economics, we overthrow the rich and, and in a revolution, and then after that, we can have a, a perfect state of equality that he called, and many others at the time called, communism. So that was a philosophy that was very popular throughout the first half of the 20th century. It was responsible for revolutions in Russia, yeah. uh, revolutions in certain countries in Asia, yeah. obviously revolution in China as well, um, revolutions in Cuba, uh, other parts of Latin America. So it was a very, very powerful ideology, but it was largely an, about the rich and the poor. Now, in the 1960s and especially the 1970s, um, basically Marxism around the world starts sort of, it's, it's, people start seeing that it's really working out that well. Mm. And so people basically start changing Marx's ideas a little bit, tweaking them and, and saying, well, let's not talk so much about overthrowing the capitalist economic system, even though it is oppressive and everything. Let's talk about other ways that people are oppressed. So let's not just talk about the rich and the poor. How are other ways that, what are other ways that people are oppressed in society? And so a lot of this sort of started in America and they looked at America and they thought, well, obviously African-Americans are still oppressed in America. Mm. Uh, you've still got segregation in America. You've got shocking uh, income disparities between uh, African-Americans and non-African-Americans. Uh, but also, interestingly, they started looking at other things like women. Women are an oppressed uh, group as well. And what is oppressing women? Well, the patriarchy. Uh, what are some other oppressed groups? Aha, um, those who don't conform to heterosexual um, uh, norms. Uh, so mm. homosexuals, as, as you know, they called them sort of back in the 60s and 70s, homosexuals. Yeah. Eventually they started calling them gay, um, queer, other terms like that. Uh, those are other people who are oppressed. Mm. And basically what started happening was an increasing emphasis on how society is, a, is, is a basically a scene of struggle, just like Karl Marx said. But except instead of emphasizing the rich persecuting the poor, they started emphasizing basically white heterosexual males. Does any of this sound familiar? Mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, oppressing uh, women, 
uh, sexual minorities like uh, uh, gays and lesbians and also uh, racial minorities. And essentially what that led to was a, a movement in the universities to, as much as possible, uh, critique and try to overthrow ways of thinking. Uh, now, some of it, you know, you could argue is, is, is kind of positive and, and drew from sort of positive yeah. traditions. Uh, for example, you know, no one likes racism. Yeah. Um, no one likes that at all. And so, you know, that, that you know, um, there, were, there was some, some truth in, in, in that one, although probably Dr. Martin Luther King uh, his anti-racist movement was was far more effective because it grounded itself um, not so much in a rhetoric of aggression and 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 hatred, quite frankly, but in in a rhetoric of of, of love because his was very much a Christian grounded anti-segregation anti-racism movement. But but the other aspects of cultural Marxism were okay. We've got to overthrow the way we think about. Um, uh, sexuality. Uh, so what we need to do is need to get uh, people, uh, cultural Marxists, critical theorists into schools and start teaching kids that um, if, you know, that, that, that traditional sex and gender norms are oppressive and try to get them to think differently. And so mm. you get, uh, you get programs in schools teaching children that uh, you know, you, you don't have to be either a boy or a girl. You, you can be, um, you, you can be a sort of um, a gender, yeah. uh, non-gender binary. You can be any other yeah. other genders. You get people into schools uh, teaching that sort of past views on on sexual morality is oppressive and it's led to the oppression of of of, of sexual minorities today. Yeah. And basically trying to get people to see the Christian ethic. As, as oppressive and needing to be overthrown. And it's being done through high schools. It's being done through Walt Disney and, and entertainment. I mean, most of you probably, some of you might be aware that, that one of the, the, the highest executives in Walt Disney, a, a woman, came out literally days ago and said that, you know, she's got a transgender child and a pansexual child. Mm. I don't know how that, how that works. And she said basically her goal is to have at least 50% of Disney characters to, to be non-gender uh, traditional yeah. and non-sexuality sort of traditional. And again, that, that's sort of this cultural Marxist program of trying to overthrow uh, traditional ways of thinking about gender and sexuality and bring about a new kind of diversity, inclusivity, uh, utopia uh, via the messages sent to children uh, through cartoons and things. And you get it on, on, on shows yeah. these days as well. And also it's, it's all over the place. Um, and so it, essentially cultural Marxism, uh, it was, was basically the, the adoption of Marx's ideas and applying them to other aspects of culture, essentially with the overall goal of overthrowing Christian biblical understandings of identity, gender, and sexuality and replacing yeah. it with a kind of, in a sense, a kind of anarchy um, where there are almost no norms, yeah. uh, which, which again, is sort of called diversity, inclusivity and things yeah. like that. Do you see, Steve, it, like do you see any kind of, what are the downsides and upsides to that kind of way of thinking? Um, because it's it seems like it's going really, really quick. Like we're after progress. We want to keep pushing forward. We want to keep pushing, pushing towards this utopia that you kind of talk about. But it's kind of like what is the goal? And um, 
kind of are there any benefits in your opinion or like what are kind of some of the downsides that we should probably be aware of? Well, any movement that seeks to overturn biblical ways of thinking about sexuality, gender, and identity uh, is all downsides uh, because the biblical understanding of who we are as human beings, um, male, female, and the proper expression and context of human sexuality between a man and a woman in marriage, Mm. uh, those ways of thinking and living that God has given to us are baked into our uh, nature as human beings, and they're actually conducive to human flourishing. God didn't reveal these things to us because he wants to make us miserable. They're actually part of our human nature. And consequently, you know, the downside culturally when you start sort of overturning all of those norms and and basically, and and you've got to remember most of these norms have been the norms, not just for Christian societies, but societies in general throughout human history. Now, of course, there are sort of exceptional things that we can talk about. But when I talk about a Christian understanding of gender and of sexuality, it's really something that's so baked into human nature that things like male-female marriage for the for the, um, the procreation, preservation of children, and things like and so basically an understanding of of, of, of sex and gender as as basically anchored to our biology. Uh, these are, these are ideas not unique to Christian societies. They're they're historically and culturally almost everywhere. Mm. And why? Well, because they're true because they're true. They're sort of objectively true and they're objectively good and they objectively work. Uh, And so any cultural movement that seeks to overthrow them must be headed towards a kind of increasing cultural misery and cultural suicide. I mean, if you believe that what the Bible teaches us about what it is to be male, what it is to be female and, and how we ought to express ourselves sexually, if you believe that these things are true and good, Mm. then you must also then believe that cultural movements that seek to overturn them are are wrong for a start, Mm. Um, but not just wrong, actually will turn out to be destructive and will not lead to people being happier, but will lead to actually all sorts of uh, mental health problems, uh, problems in in the family, breakdowns in the family, and probably um, other things as well. Uh, So they would be, you know, the downsides, uh, I think, of what we're talking about. And if I can be perfectly blunt, um, I think there are upsides in, in recognizing that there are people out there who struggle with gender identity and who struggle with same-sex attraction. Hmm. I think, I think you know, the, these, are, these are people whose, whose struggles should be acknowledged. Um, but I don't think celebrating these things and I don't think encouraging people to simply pursue their desires or pursue their strongest feelings which is sort of what the modern individualistic um, a sort of be true to yourself movement wants to do. I, I think that's a really bad way to address it because I think for the most part over time, it's actually going to lead people to be, um, at, the, at the very least, it's going to lead them away from God. Mm. Um, 
but it's 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 going to lead people to you know all sorts of um, other problems as well. And and, and, and you know it's it's a sensitive issue. But the transgender issue is is a classic example. Yeah. And, and sort of it's particularly with the rates of of post surgery regret in transgenderism and things like that. The Christian approach. Uh, is to acknowledge these struggles and help people to work through them mm. while not lying to them and, and saying that these are good uh, feelings, that, 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 that these are the proper feelings that they should have and that these are grounded in truth, because that's lying to them, but it's also sending them down a path that's not good for them. Mm. Uh, the proper approach is to help them to work through them and, and to come to grips with, for example, why they feel uh, that, that why they feel um, gender confusion and, and maybe suggest that it probably goes back to some trauma or some other mental health issues that might be taking place. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, to, to look, if I can just be frank, I don't really see any good sides to uh, the secular slash cultural Marxist approach to these things at all. I see it basically as the path of destruction, but I do see pos a positive Christian way uh, to deal with these things. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, really cool insights there. Um, I'm wondering... In... Why is uh, keeping on the gender kind of thing? So I'm thinking about kind of um, technology as well, but how has gender, like this focus on gender identity, why is that the focus? Why is that the identity? You kind of brought it up a little bit before. Like why is that particularly the gen, like the, the, the marker of who you are? It's not that you're Stephen Shavura of the Shavura household, but like why is it? Why is the, the marker, the big anchoring thing of who you are now meant to be your gender and not something else? Well, I'd say that there are probably, there are probably three big markers, and, and gender is just one of them. The three big markers are race, gender, and sexuality. Mm. Now, why are they the three big markers? Well, basically because they are the three things that sort of intellectuals and activists over the last 50 years have, have, have just described as sort of the locus or the place where people have been most oppressed. Okay. Uh, so again, sort of coming out of the 60s and particularly the 70s, you had the, the anti-racial segregation movement uh, in the 60s. And so that, and so sort of racial identity has continued on to be a, a fairly big deal among people um, in, in sort of the quest for sort of what you might call sort of racial equality, racial justice. Uh, but, but, but also, again, uh, um, sort of the emphasis on, on gender, that again comes out of the 1960s and 70s as well, where there was this strong belief that women had been basically oppressed all through history. And I don't want to suggest that, that women haven't been oppressed through history, but what I would suggest is that the way that, that, that feminism has often read women's oppression in history has been very, very simplistic hmm. and, and oftentimes quite misleading. But nonetheless, uh, it's, it's a strong uh, belief that we've had, that we have. And, and so that uh, has also... Uh, led us to sort of place a very, very heavy focus on our 
on our, particularly for women seeing themselves as women. And, and, and that's probably had a kind of reaction where a, a kind of male consciousness has emerged in, in response or reaction to it. And look, a, a lot of this is quite frankly, you know, why is this the way that we tend to think these days? Well, because there has basically been a program of getting us to think these ways by teaching things like gender studies, culture studies, um, queer studies and sexuality studies in universities, which has, again, over time, very much shaped the culture mm. and, and created a media, created a, a corporate world, uh, created a university system, created a high school system, which just seems to be obsessed um, with, with gender, with sexuality and with, um, with, with race. Mm. And, and, and with the, the other thing is that, that, that these things, particularly I would say sex and, and uh, sorry, sort of um, sex slash sex and, and sexuality, like these are actually very important parts of us. Like yeah. one's, one's sexuality is, is not a small aspect of who they are. Like, you know, you know, I, I'm, I'm attracted to my wife and that's not a small part of, of who I am. And that's not mm. a small part of my life. That's a, that's a major part of our lives. Yep. And, and so it should be um, because God has commanded us to go forth and multiply. He's commanded us actually to make other human beings. Yep. And consequently it's, it's understandable. That would be a strong urge in us uh, yeah. to do it. Sure. Um, but, but we sort of take it and make it sort of, the, the focal point of, of who we are. Mm. I think that, I mean, there are so many reasons for it. It's just the way we've been trained to think out of universities and by, and by the media, by entertainment. But the other thing, quite frankly, is sex sells, sex sells. And it's an incredibly strong urge in all of us. And so I would actually just say corporations have really taken advantage of it mm. and made it the focal point of a lot of advertising, uh, to the point where people are starting, where we're in such a, a culture that so emphasizes the, the sexual aspect of who we are, that any idea to the effect that you could sort of, that you should manage or suppress your urges mm. is actually a form of oppression. Mm. And all Christian, all Christians whether they're heterosexual attracted, same-sex attracted, are commanded to manage and, dare I say it, even repress their sexual urges. All of us are um, because, you know, you're not allowed to have sex outside of marriage and so the desire to do so must be managed and repressed. Sure. And even within marriage, you know, you know, there, there are, you know, husbands are commanded to love their wives and that, you know, that will have an element where you've actually got to manage, you know, as a man, you know, um, your expect your realistic expectations in a marriage. And of course it also extends to people with same sex attraction as well. Yeah. Um, and so that's an intrinsic part of Christianity to, to manage and dare I say, even repress these urges, because if they're not managed and they're not repressed, then they can be actually quite dangerous. Sure. Um, ask, ask any woman, ask any woman, would you rather live in a society where men do, um, manage and suppress their sexual urges or, or a society where they don't? Now, any woman in her right mind would say they'd actually much rather a society where men do actually manage and suppress their urges. 
Uh, and if you don't think that, then you don't know men very well, um, <laughs> which might mean you've got a lot of great men around you. Um, so that's nice, but yeah. <laughs> um, it's naive too. Uh, but, but when you're in a culture that, that basically starts emphasizing if you want something or if you have an urge, not only do you have a right to fulfill it, but in a sense, that is, that is your identity. Um, that is who you are, basically the sum total of your desires. Mm. Then again, the really idea, dangerous. yeah, well, the idea that, that you would try to manage them or even say, you know something, I have these desires, but I shouldn't have them because, in fact, they're against creation. That is seen as as oppressive and also mm. harmful Yeah. Um, uh, because, again, we're in a kind of happiness, mental health ethic these days. Yeah. And so to be happy and to have high self-esteem mm. is sort of almost seen as sort of the greatest good that you can have. And consequently, any teachings that, that, that would teach things that would, that would make someone's self-esteem lower that is not just considered sort of mean and unkind and offensive, it's actually considered harmful. And so uh, one piece of advice I want to give to everyone tonight mm. is that you want to be very, very careful with how people talk about harm because nowadays people are saying words and teachings and ideas are harmful and what they normally mean by that are biblical teachings on sexuality and gender. That is what they mean. If you want to know more about that, you might jump onto YouTube. I have a talk um, on YouTube uh, entitled, uh, Is Christianity Harmful? That yeah. might be of some, some use to some of you. Yeah. Uh, there's some of the reasons uh, why we've sort of become quite obsessed with particularly the sexuality and probably the gender aspect of, of identity these yeah. days. Yeah, that's really good. Thanks, Steve. And I kind of wanted to finish on this bit because I want to. I'm curious to get to some Q and A as well. But you touched on mental health there, so mm. the kind of the ethic of kind of going, you have like to be mentally healthy is to follow every desire and feeling kind of that you have. And it's yep. not to say that every desire that you have is bad. Um, but what do you think? Is it actually is the irony that it's actually doing worse in some circumstances to your mental health by following? kind of what you feel all the time? Like, could you speak into that if you have any thoughts? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, first I would say that there, there, there is a, there most definitely is a mental health epidemic. There's no doubt in my mind about that. The question is what's causing it. And I would say probably the main cause of it is probably the breakdown of the family. Mm. Uh, the, probably the biggest predictor of poor mental health outcomes is whether someone comes from a healthy family or not. That is an intact family. Now, that does not mean that just because you come from a family that's broken that, that you're going to have severe mental health problems, but it just means that you're more likely to have them if you do. Uh, and I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on anyone who might be divorced or anything like that. I'm being purely descriptive and, and I'm not uh, yeah, I just want to make that very clear. But there, there is a kind of mental health epidemic. And, and, part, and, and another cause of it is, is the fact that we probably have become so inward looking. Mm. We've become in some ways, not everyone, but, but sort of less communal. People don't go out and socialize in clubs as much as they did um, um, you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. But the other thing is that our individualism is also a very, very rights-focused individualism. 
and 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 what we what we know is that people actually find meaning in life not so much through rights but they find meaning actually through duties and so when you ask people you know what's the most meaning when you ask people of a certain age you know what is the most meaningful in your thing in your life very often they'll say my family and when you break it down i mean their family is an immense source of happiness but ultimately their relationship with their family is very much one of duties mm. mothers to husbands mothers to children and fathers to wives fathers to children it's duties that tend to give our lives meaning yeah. but when you're in a uh, because they give us a reason to 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 sort of get up and and do things if you like sure. um when you're in a culture which only emphasizes rights you're kind of in a culture where you've got all these choices but not necessarily a very strong reason to do any of them um hmm. rights a right to do something is not a reason to do it what i mean is i i've got a if someone said to me you know um if i said to someone you know i'm going skydiving over the weekend and they said oh wow why are you doing that and if i said to them because i have a right to do it that's a pretty strange answer because i haven't really given them a reason Hmm. Um, kind of like if you said to someone, oh, I'm going to marry my worst enemy. And they said, why would you do that? And, and you said, that's my right. That doesn't make any sense. What people are asking for is an explanation, a reason. Why hmm. is it meaningful to you? And in a society where we become very right-centric, we lose an emphasis on meaning and obligations. And it's the it's meaning and obligations yeah. and duties in life that actually anchor us and give us meaning. Um, and so that's another cause of, I think, of the mental health epidemic, that, that we're sort of in a, a meaning void, duty void culture. Mm. And people are just sort of floating around thinking, what, what am I going to do with my life? And, and the answer, whatever you want, well, for a lot of people, that's not that helpful. Yeah, um, You can become paralyzed and, and terrified, paralyzed by choice and mm. terrified by choice. Um so that sort of that so yeah we're most definitely sort of we've most definitely got these sort of uh mental health issues yeah and i suppose that's also to some extent feeding into i mean it's it kind of self-perpetuating and uh, 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 to be very i won't go on much longer matthew but no, certainly from certainly from the 1940s you have the rise of the expert of the expert psychologist. And, and, and over the last particularly 40 years, uh, psychologists have increasingly become our sort of almost our moralists, the people we go to, to find out what should I do with my life. In the past, you would go to a priest, a theologian, mm. maybe you'd go to a philosopher. Yeah. Um, but nowadays, who do you go to? You kind of go to a, a, a psychologist or a counselor, someone trained in psychology, mm. And um, that has also, and I've got no problem with psychologists or counselors, fantastic yeah. and it's fascinating stuff. But what it probably has done is also led to an obsession, a social obsession with how we are feeling. And I think actually given our fallen nature as human beings, the more you actually do look into yourself and obsess over yourself, you know something, probably the more miserable you are going to become if you're honest about yourself, because there's a lot of stuff in us that's just no good. Yeah. Our insecurities, our propensities to selfishness, our irrationality, yeah. um, and all our vices that we have. 
And so in a culture where we're sort of trained to almost have an obsessive interest in what makes me tick, in America, there's this sort of culture of going and seeing a psychiatrist, going and seeing a um, that's probably something that's not going to help us all that much either, given, given our, our natural propensity as, as sinners. You're going to uncover a whole bunch of stuff that's not going to be very pretty, mm. which is, again, not, not me saying don't go to counsellors. Yeah, sure. Um, but but the, I, I think an, an, an emphasis, believe it or not, I actually think an emphasis on mental ill health probably perpetuates a sense that bad feelings are depression, and being stressed and anxious is mental health. Sure. I yeah. have, I have, and, and and if you want to read a good book on this, read The Coddling of the American Mind by Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt, The Coddling of the American Mind. And what they found was that the more that you try to protect people's mental health, the more you try to protect them from things that may uh, make them feel uncomfortable or offend them, the more you try to protect them with trigger warnings, in actual fact, the more sensitive and fragile they become mm. and actually the less functional they become uh, because the fact is life is what it is you're going to hear things you're going to see things that are a bit upsetting yeah uh, and you've really just got to learn to deal with what's what, what we traditionally called resilience yeah and i can I, I can if i can just finish with one anecdote yeah, right. matthew it's very very quick <laughs> in the past i had a student who wrote to me once and she said and this is not an unusual isolated incident but but, and it's both guys and girls, but she wrote to me and said, look, I'm having, I'm having mental health issues. Uh, I've got a whole bunch of personal things going on. Can I have an extension on the assignment? And I wrote back and said, well, you know, what you want to do is, is fill out the, you know, the, the application form and detail what the problems are with some, some sort of documentation. Anyhow, uh, the next day she sort of wrote back and, and kind of said, oh, you know, it's okay. I just, I just basically plowed through it. It's not my best work, but I got it done. Yeah. And I sort of thought to myself, you know, well, in the old days, we wouldn't have called that sort of a mental health issue. We would have mm. just said, yeah, I'm kind of stressed. Yeah, and a bit yep. bit anxious about this assignment. Yeah, and okay, let's just let's just do just our best do here and do. get it done. <laughs> yeah, uh, but nowadays it's almost becoming people are sort of self-diagnosing and they're, they're calling just general feelings of stress and anxiety a mental health problem. Mm. That is not helpful culturally. Yeah, um, that is not helpful. No, I hear you. I think that's some really good stuff in there, Steve. Thank you for answering that and, and thank you for this conversation. It was honestly so good and I cannot believe how much you covered in, in a matter of about 40, 50 minutes. It was amazing. <laughs> um, so uh, for, Thank you. Yeah, all good. Um, for those of you who are watching uh, on, at a future date, feel free to give this a share and a like. We'd love for this to be able to be shared around for those who might find it interesting and thought-provoking. Um, but other than that, Steve, thank you so much. We're going to go to some Q&A in about, we're going to take a five-minute break. So if those of you who are at home or you're here, you want to take a bit of a, a stretch, go, go, go to the bathroom, get some water. We've been sitting for a little bit and then we'll come back and do some questions. Thanks, guys. Thank you. I'll be back soon. Mm -hmm.